Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Brad, as Keith mentioned. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge, and uh, my wife Meg and I had a great weekend uh, away in Seattle last weekend, enjoying uh, sleeping in because our kids were at home and some good coffee, so it's good to be back here with you all. Um, One of the things that I get the privilege to do is to uh, meet lots of people over coffee, and some people uh, that are friends of mine that don't profess to believe in God at all, who don't make any pretense that they attend church or have any connection uh, with God or organized religion in that way. And I'm often intrigued, I'll talk to them about what are their perceptions about Christians and about Christianity, And many of my friends who are on the outside looking in have very intriguing perceptions. One of the things that comes up a lot, and maybe you've heard this in conversation with people, is that uh, some of my friends looking inside remark in not-so-glowing terms about how kind of plasticky they see Christians Uh, and how sort of plastically optimistic Christians are. They kind of perceive Christians as happy or smug in some ways because they project to the world that they have it all together, whereas they really don't. And so my friend's perceptions, I had a conversation like this two weeks ago, is that, well, they just slap a smile on their face and they shrug off the tough stuff of life with a grin and kind of campily go on their way as if nothing is wrong whatsoever. And it's not only those outside the church that have this perception. In the late 1990s, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, the, how's this for a title? The Right Reverend, Right Honorable Lord Robert Alexander Kennedy Runchy. try putting that on a business card said in an interview in a very derogatory tone that he felt that most evangelicals were, quote, happy clappy people or happy clappers. And he was referring to, uh, in the context of that interview, a style of kind of corporate worship gatherings and a style of music that seemed, in his opinion, to focus more on rousing happy and pleasant emotions in people than on focusing on the object of worship, that being God himself. And he felt that, by and large, Christians were becoming swept up in emotionalism and that this would lead to a distancing from reality and from an ability to identify with the suffering and heartaches of the real world. I don't know if you share some of those perceptions I think there there are decent ones to wrestle with because the real problem with, and I'll steal his term, happy, clappy Christianity is that if you are a happy, clappy person and you're a happy, clappy Christian and life doesn't deal you a happy, clappy hand, it can be very disconcerting for you. It can cause a, a crisis of faith. In these moments, because what you've been told to expect by Pastor Joel Oosteen is not necessarily your reality. And so often in those moments, when you're in the midst of a non-happy, clappy experience, that maybe a happy, clappy Christian friend comes up to you and says something stupid. 
And I'm going to ask you in a few minutes to reflect on maybe some things that have been said to you uh, that were either profoundly disconcerting in those situations or were helpful for you. Christians say dumb things like, well, just cling to James chapter 1, you know, count it all joy. God is just, God's making you stronger. Or, you know, if you love God, like Romans 28, 28 says, if you love God, you know, this is all going to work out okay. I think about in the Old Testament, uh, the story of the of Job, who experienced incredible loss and pain and hardship in his life. And his three friends come and they sit with him. And at the beginning, they sit with him for a whole week in silence. I think, awesome, this is so great. They're going to be such supportive friends. And then they open their mouths. And their friends reflect on Job's experience and say, Job, if you could just tell us where you think you've sinned, then we can really help you confess that, and then that's probably why God has visited all of this stuff on you and this hardship. It's just that you're a rotten person, and you just haven't acknowledged that yet. Very helpful friends in his interactions. But all these things aside, times of adversity and affliction, even if people don't say stupid things to you, can be times that are very lonely and very challenging experiences for us as human beings. And so the question that we want to wrestle with this morning is this. Is there any way that a person whose life is being transformed, like we're talking about, responds differently to adversity? How does a transformed person respond to adversity? In January and February here at Jericho, we've been looking at this uh, series called Upside Down, where we're looking in Romans chapter 12. And Romans chapter 12 invites us to consider how our lives might get turned upside down or upended in some way if Christ is indeed doing work in our hearts and transforming us. Things will look differently, our perspectives, our engagement with the world and with each other. And so we've been looking verse by verse through Romans chapter 12. 12, starting in verse 9 and going through to the end of the chapter. And there's this whole series of descriptions uh, of litmus tests that make the case that if you say that you are a Christian, if you call yourself and identify the name of Jesus as your Lord, that there's certain things that you're going to look for in your life that are growing in your life that prove it, kind of fruit-based evidences of the fact that your life is being transformed. doesn't mean they're there in full fruition. means we're on a journey together into these things. So in Romans chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 9, we talked about how that's a bit of a heading for this section and how we're called to live authentically both towards God and towards each other. And then in verse 10, 11, 12, and 13, there's this series of uh, 10 little phrases that make the case specifically of examples of how that might begin to work itself out in your heart and in your life. And each one of those phrases begins with a virtue and then describes an action that would give witness to the fact that how that virtue is being lived out. So in other words, Romans 12 verses 10 through 13 could read if we put the virtue first and the action second, could read as follows. In love, 
devoted to each other. So this is a description, right? How do, how do people who say that they are Christians, they, when in the love that they demonstrate, they're devoted to each other, and we described what that meant. In honor, outdoing one another, putting each other first, preference, putting aside personal preferences. Thirdly, in zeal, never lacking. In the Spirit, being aglow or being aflame or set on fire, like Keith used the the metaphor uh, and the example of last week. To the Lord, serving. Described and talked a little bit about that last week as well and, and what that might, the outcome of that and the fruit of that in our lives might be. In hope, getting into verse 12, rejoicing. In tribulation, being patient. In prayer, being constant to the needs of others, sharing generously, and in hospitality, diligent. So we're going to leave those last two. That that starts into verse 13 and beyond. So we're going to focus today on what we find in uh, Romans 12, verse 12, which is number 6, 7, and 8 on that list, in hope rejoicing, in tribulation being patient, in prayer being constant. And those 10 kind of compact phrases work right in lockstep with each other, even though some of them seem quite different and disparate at first glance. And so today we're going to uh, focus on those three phrases that appear in Romans chapter 12, 12, which in the New Living Translation, when you kind of smooth out and put it uh, not virtue first in action and, and more of an instructional setting, it says, Rejoice in our confident hope, be patient in trouble, and keep on praying. So let's look at each of these individually. So the first manifestation of a person with a transformed life that's mentioned in Romans 12, 12 is that they are filled with joy. They are rejoicing, but their joy is rooted in something very specific. They don't rejoice in the troubles and circumstances of this life, but they rejoice in the confidence that comes from a hope that is rooted in the future-oriented nature of Christian hope. They rejoice in the confident hope that God has promised to those who love Him, and that is heaven. The writer of Romans, the Apostle Paul, is writing this to a group of people who are right in the middle of experiencing anything but hopeful circumstances. In these moments in history, these people are, are faced with historically some of the most challenging experiences that the Christian movement has ever faced. They look around them and see each day people who are coming to faith from all different walks of life, but whose circumstances are not magically changing in any way. They look around them and they see and experience people who will not renounce their faith being thrown into the Colosseum of Rome and being killed and martyred in the Colosseum. It's written to a group of people hearing about their peers 
who are um, unwilling to uh, pay homage to Caesar as the ultimate Lord and who say, no, Jesus is my ultimate Lord. And so Caesar says, fine, if that's how you feel about it, I'll rope you to a stake in my garden, I will dump hot wax on you, and I will burn you at the stake. And thousands were in the gardens of the Roman emperor. These are people who are seeing families ripped apart as women like one of the early martyrs, Perpetua, is hauled off to jail for professing their primary allegiance to Jesus as opposed to the state. And when you're in the middle of this high-risk scenario as a minority, not as a majority, it's very normal and healthy to ask the question, is this commitment worth the cost? Christians all around the world today have to ask the question in a way that you and I here in North America are wonderfully privileged not to have to wrestle with. So Paul writes to them and reminds them and teaches them and us of the fact that as followers of Jesus, our joy doesn't come from our circumstances. Ultimately, our joy comes from the confident hope that we have in knowing that a person with a transformed heart has a transformed future. John Piper, in a sermon on Christian joy, uses the metaphor of a tree. And this tree is rooted in the soil of God's grace. And the strong fibers of the tree trunk, he says, are like the unshakable promises that God has made to us about his character, about his faithfulness, about heaven, and about all of the things that he's promised to us. And the branches of this tree are our confident hope in these promises, the hope of heaven. And then the natural fruit that that tree produces is joy. Because this joy or rejoicing in confident hope isn't something that you simply muster up by willpower by yourself. It's not even something that's natural when faced with troubling circumstances. It's something that's supernatural that only God by his Holy Spirit can create in your life and in your heart. It's not emotionalism. It's not happy clappiness. It comes from the Spirit of God who grows a confident trust in that hope in your life and mine as we experience circumstances that might not lead us to natural paths of joy, humanly speaking. But we place those experiences in the context of our hope of eternity. But note that the tension that rises up and that you might be wrestling with already here as you try and think about this. Joy in our world and in our normal usage of it is associated with the present, what I'm experiencing right now. We don't often talk about joy uh, that we are going to experience. Joy is, is, in our mind, a natural result of favorable circumstances right here, right now. Apparently, people bring me flowers at my house, and that creates joy. (laughs) Or if I get a really good cup of coffee, that creates joy. But that can result, that kind of joy can result in a sort of a superficial, temporary, happy, clappy Christianity, if that's all that we have. Because when my circumstances change, then my joy disappears with them. But if my 
view of my relationship with God and his relationship with me is that when circumstances change, my rejoicing is not anchored to those circumstances, but is tied to hope. And hope is always tied to the future. This is what Paul is talking about, both here and in many other texts in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says in verse 8, We're pressed on every side by troubles. We are not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but we are never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. For our present troubles, verse 17, are very small, and they won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things that we see now will soon be gone, but the things that we cannot see will last forever. As my heart is being increasingly transformed by God, I am increasingly led to experience joy, not because of my circumstances, but because of the confidence that grows in my heart in the hope that I have. Does that distinction make sense to you? All right, so let's talk about what questions that brings up, and let's talk about what are things that people have said to you in those situations or circumstances. Let's stay on the positive side for a little bit. What are things that people have said to you in the midst of those situations of challenge and adversity that have been helpful for you, that you felt like were not something stupid to say? For me, one of the most important things people do when I'm facing challenging times is like some sort of physical contact, like a hug or something is really important. And also just acknowledging that it's mm. a stinky situation. Yeah. Like for me, I hate it when people gloss over the stinky situation. So I really, it's really reassuring for me. I don't know why to just be acknowledging that this sucks, yeah. like straight up. That's yeah. really helpful for me. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Anybody else sort of feel the same way as Rihanna? Like, don't, I'm, I'm kind of like that too. I'm like, don't, sh- even though I'm kind of more optimistic by personality, I'm like, don't sugarcoat it for me. If this is bad, let's just agree together. This is bad. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Get it out there, right? Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. Okay, what else? Mm-hmm. Things that people have said to you in, those, in situations that you found have been helpful. All right, Pam. <laughs> I think for me, one of the most important things was just for someone to give me permission to feel how I was feeling and say, mm. it's okay. God's big enough. He can handle that. Right. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Well, you guys making me get my exercise today. <laughs> good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Deb. <laughs> um, we had friends who suffered something big and um, we talked to a grief counselor who'd been talking to them and she said the best thing that you can do is just be there um, and let them feel how they're feeling and I would agree with that that the people who um, changed their plane tickets when they knew things were going badly in my life and stuck around or the people who um, 
let me laugh when I wanted to laugh instead of looking at me like you shouldn't be laughing right now, this is a sad situation. Um, let me be who I am in all of the ways that I am instead of expecting a certain behavior from me and when I wasn't producing that, um, I also had people ask those awkward questions trying to make me cry and then I cried and then they hugged me and they felt better because they had consoled me but I hadn't really been in the mood to cry when they started the conversation. <laughs> so, um, so letting me be who I am mm. and where I'm at mm. when they talk to me was really valuable. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's good. Okay. I won't make you run. <laughs> uh, so a couple of years ago, I left an abusive husband, and uh, the unhelpful thing that Christians said to me all the time was, oh, I'm so sorry. Um, but the helpful thing that non-Christians always said to me was, I'm so proud of you. Mm. <laughs> so just to let you know, the time for pity was while I was in the abusive relationship. But at that time, nobody knew what was going on. And when something slipped out, I got shock, not pity. <laughs> like, right. you let him do that to you? <laughs> not, I'm so sorry, you know. Mm. And once I left, it was the time for congratulations and support. But the pity w was... It w was weird. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Timing. Yeah. <coughs> right. Well, I'm sure there's lots of um, other things that, that we could dialogue together about on that front uh, because there are, yeah, there's so many different ways that both we experience it and then people try to help us process those things together around our circumstances. But I think so too often the perception uh, that I referenced earlier is, is driven out of this place of misunderstanding that Christians are happy about their circumstances, regardless of what those circumstances are. So rejoice in our confident hope is future-oriented. The, the second little phrase in our little trio helps set the tone of how a person that is uh, being transformed responds to adversity and an affliction. And they respond not with joy about it, but with patience in it. The phrase is, be patient in trouble. Just because joy is the fruit of my future-oriented hope does not make my life mystically pain-free of experiences or troubles that are deep and can wound. But the transformed person that is being transformed responds to situations of affliction with two things, this verse says, and one is patience and the other one is prayer. James chapter 1 is often quoted sometimes glibly to people in the midst of suffering. But look carefully what James 1 says about times of trouble. James chapter 1, starting in verse 2. Dear brothers and sisters, when trouble comes your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your understanding is fully developed, your endurance rather is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. I've had people come into my life in times of challenge, quote James chapter 1, verse 2, and say to themselves, well, 
I'm, I'm, you know, your time of trouble, you should just consider that a source of joy. <laughs> and I think to myself, well, you sure wouldn't if you were in my shoes. That's not what this text actually says if you read it carefully. It doesn't say when troubles come your way, consider the troubles great joy. It says consider the opportunity to develop endurance in the midst of them to be a constant reminder of the hope of heaven. We're never commanded to be joyful about the trials themselves. We're invited to consider patient endurance as another fruit that can grow on the branch of hope in the tree of God's faithful promises rooted in the soil of his grace and his love. I'm joyful in that no matter what happens to me, I have a secure and confident hope in my life and in my destiny. This doesn't mean I'm joyful about the troubles themselves. About my troubles, the Scripture says I am to be patient. And this is really, really hard for me. (laughs) I don't know about you. I'm not a patient person by nature. If you take me fishing, you need to guarantee me a fish. It's not about the experience of fishing and lines in the water and the wonderful day we can have talking out on a boat. I need a fish because I'm a results-oriented person when it comes to these things. So patience is very challenging for me. So when troubles come into my life, one of the first things that I feel a pull towards is to ask God, okay, God, what are you trying to teach me here? Uh, Because what I would love for you to do is let me know what I am supposed to be learning so that I can quickly learn it and then we can move on from this particular experience and be done with this affliction. (laughs) So just tell me what it is I'm supposed to learn and I'll learn it and we can get out of this. Patience is not my strong suit. Especially patience in affliction. Because I'm very outcome-oriented, and so if I don't know how long a particular affliction or trouble is going to be last, that makes it even more difficult for me because there's no end game. And I can't just sort of grit my teeth and bear it. I often have trouble clinging to joyful hope, and I most certainly have trouble clinging to patience in the midst of challenges. I can think about the time growing up when my grandmother lived for us with us for a season in the early stages of Alzheimer's. And what seemed like at the outset, and we were discussing as a family, was going to be a 14-month ordeal turned to 14 years of experiencing a journey of loss, day by day, memory by memory. It was tough as a family to be patient for 14 years. I think about the time when Meg and I were hunched over our two-month-old baby daughter in an incubator in the hospital, filled with nothing but uncertainty about her future. It was not a place of joy for us. I think about many of you here at Jericho who have walked through and are walking through deep places of loss and pain, a loss of a child, loss of a family member, a loss of a dream, an unrealized expectation about where you thought you would be at this point in your life or relationship, deep hurt and pain 
experienced as a result of a broken relationship or marriage, the deep and extended pain of a child who's walked away from their faith and their family, patience required to endure extended seasons of job transition. Patience is just such hard work in these settings and so many more. I think about Al and Herta as they walk through Herta's diagnosis and treatment for breast cancer. I think about Danny walking through experiences with his leg and his back and gallbladder surgery this past year. I think about all the people that I know in my life and you know in your life that live with chronic illness. I think about people like around Jericho Ridge here like Sean who's been waiting for a decade for a kidney transplant. So the Bible tells Sean that he has to be happy in the midst of his experience. But it does tell us that we're to be patient in the midst of our affliction. Why? I don't know about you, but patience pushes me to my knees. There's a very logical connection between patience in affliction and the third phrase, persistence in prayer and faithfulness in prayer. Dr. James Edwards, in his very helpful assessment of the book of Romans, reminds us that prayer is what makes endurance possible. With the potential exception of faith, I can't think of anything in the Scripture that requires more effort than prayer. And when it comes to spiritual practices, there's often nothing that I need more practice at than faithfulness in prayer, except for those times when I'm in the midst of a season of affliction. Because when I'm in the midst of trouble, I remember to pray. I pray for others. I pray for the situation. I pray first telling God what he should do and how he should change the situation and change his mind about the circumstances and take it away. After a while, sometimes I find myself praying and asking God not what he should do, but maybe what I should do. Patience pushes me to my knees. And on my knees, I cry out to God about the circumstance, about my family in chaos or finances or poor decisions or asking for wisdom or whatever it is I'm praying about. And when I'm on my knees in the midst of those times, I don't actually find that a lot of other happy, clappy Christians are around me because they kind of distance themselves by that time. And that's okay. When I'm on my knees in those situations, I find a deep sense of soul connection with others who are battle-worn and who are wounded and who are scarred and who are willing to share and sit with me and listen and who are also crying out to God in the midst of their circumstances and who are willing to weep with those who weep. There's a lot more that the Scripture says about affliction and suffering. And we're going to get into some of that in our series moving into Easter about what keeps us stuck and helps us get unstuck when we walk with Jesus. But this morning I want to move into a time of response in worship and song and prayer. And we have our prayer team today. It's Aaron Franson and Jody 
and Kevin Claussen and Kristen Claussen, and they would love to stand with you and join in asking God for patience in the midst of your trials this morning. I don't know if you know these people. They're part of our leadership team. If you know anything about their stories, they have walked through some deep places of being wounded. And so they're not going to pray glibly with you about your experience. If you've been sort of holding back in prayer response time and thinking, I don't know what that person might say or not say to me, these are trusted people. They're wise. They'll listen, and they'll ask what they can do and what God might be saying to you in these circumstances. Dustin and the team are going to lead us in two songs of response. And these songs of response are, are oriented towards, not necessarily even speaking about our experiences, but are oriented towards that trunk of the tree and reminding us of the promises that God has given to us that we can cling to in the midst of our circumstances of life. And reminding us that in the middle of those times, God wants us to call out to him again and again. And so if you don't mean that or you're not in a place where you can sing it, don't sing it. That's totally fine. But if you know that you need God to walk with you, either begin to walk with you and you with him, or you need a fresh dose of faith this morning, and you don't have the strength for it, these or other members of our prayer team would love to pray with you and support you in that and keep on praying with you. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me and I'm going to pray and we're going to ask that God uh, would continue to do a work in cultivating in our hearts as a community and in our hearts as individuals the patient and faithful endurance that he desires for us. So, God, we begin with confession. We confess to you that we can't get there on our own, that we can't and do not have the strength or desire to work up a happy, clappy face about our experiences. We acknowledge our places of disappointment and grief, and we come to you, God, with our hearts raw and open to you and to one another. We come to you not to ask you to magically wave some kind of wand over our circumstances and change them. We ask, God, that you would be faithful to the promises of your word that says you are near to the brokenhearted, that you are so close to those who call on you. And so, Jesus, today we call out to you each one of us that is hurting and broken and wounded, we cry out to you, Father, that we need you. We cry out to you in the midst of our pain and circumstances. We cry out to you in the midst of our not understanding and not seeing any sense of light or hope or joy or any of those things at the end of any of this tunnel. But here we are, God, and we say to you, we desire for you to speak and breathe life into those places of coldness and hardness and anger and bitterness and fear that you don't care into all of those places in our hearts. God, would you breathe by your Holy Spirit life and persistence 
even if it's just a little flame. And would you, by your spirit, fan that into flame, God, in our hearts. And so, Father, we declare that you are the faithful one. We pray that in this setting that the enemy would have no to snuff that flame out or to stir up fear in the hearts and lives of anyone here in this place, Jesus. We pray that this would be a place of safety and a place where your spirit reigns, Jesus. And so we want to respond to you, God, as your children, as people with questions on this journey together. Would you teach us, God? Would you meet us right now in this place? Let's respond to God just by singing.